I would say that maybe at the end of the day, there's instances where it's it's a great practice to be able to offer. And then I think that there's some instances where it's just a ginormous waste of time, if I'm just be, be completely honest. On this episode of Tuned In, we've got Joel joining us from Race Spec Online. Uh, Joel is a longtime friend of High Performance Academy, and we've been following him, particularly on his Instagram, for probably about as long as HPA's been in existence. And Joel has been an inspiration to me personally. Uh, looking at all of the beautiful harnesses he creates on his Instagram profile has made me strive to improve my skill set when it comes to automotive wiring. And I I know that he's inspired just as many other people out there as well. Uh, in this particular interview, we dive deep into Joel's background, how he actually got started in the automotive wiring industry, and you may be pleasantly surprised to find that he actually doesn't have a formal uh, education in automotive electronics or anything of that nature. He is largely self-taught, which in our experience at least seems pretty common in the professional motorsport wiring industry. We'll also talk about some of the terms that we hear thrown around so often in the auto automotive world such as mill spec and we'll find out what that actually means and why maybe it's not quite as relevant as most people seem to think even if it does make for a great hashtag. We'll also dive into that hotly debated topic soldering versus crimping. Every time this comes up we get bombarded with lovers of solder telling us why solder is absolutely fine for a race application. Joel builds wiring harnesses for some of the fastest and most powerful cars all around the world and for him reliability is critical. This is also absolutely key to his success and his reputation so he knows a thing or two about what to use and what not to use. Before we jump into our interview though I just wanted to talk a little bit about an Instagram that is relevant to today's topic. This is the Autosport Bulkhead Connector and we'll offer often see these used at the bulkhead or firewall connection of the wiring harness. Now there's a variety of advantages to using Autosport connectors, key among them there is the reliability of the connection but one that is quite often overlooked is that it can actually also give a race team a bit of an advantage in terms of speed when it comes to replacing an engine. Now Obviously we'd like to think that engine failures aren't going to happen but let's be honest it is motorsport and sometimes the worst occurs. Generally it's also going to happen at a time where there isn't a lot of spare time to get things swapped over and fit a new engine. And in this case the Autosport connector allows the entire wiring harness to stay attached to the engine. A simple half twist at that bulkhead connector and the entire wiring harness can be removed with the engine. Now, teams operating at this level will typically have a spare engine with a spare harness already attached to it. This means that the team simply need to refit the engine, the wiring harness gets mated up to that bulkhead connector, half twist and we're back to running. This might all seem like overkill at the enthusiast or club level of competition and let's be honest it probably is but when we're talking about professional motorsport where teams are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on cars not to mention the cost of actually getting to events and competing reliability is key and making quick repairs or engine swaps like this can make the difference between getting on the podium and not making it to the start line. Now if you do want to learn more about 
about motorsport wiring, we've actually got a range of courses available and this will fast track your learning, much like we talked to Joel about today. Uh, if there was a resource like we're now offering available when Joel got started, uh, he would have probably got to where he's got to now much much quicker. Specifically we've got our wiring fundamentals course, we've got our practical club level wiring course and our practical professional motorsport wiring courses are available depending on exactly what level you want to be working at. And as a listener to the podcast you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 and that will give you $75 US off the purchase of your very first HPA course. We'll leave a link in the description to those courses. All right, let's get into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thanks for joining us today. You're you're a, a, an account on Instagram that I've been following for probably around the last 10 years. Certainly, uh, it inspired me to, to raise my game with my wiring, and I think you're an inspiration to a lot of other people out there. Can, can we start by just getting a, a kind of an overview of your history and how you got into motorsport wiring? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. It's kind of a story I've told a couple of times in the past, but I can give a brief synopsis of it. Um, I had a previous shop, uh, ran into some unfortunate circumstances there with a hurricane. And uh, there's a period of time where I... Couldn't get to the shop. It was under, you know, National Guard order, closed off. And all that I was able to get out of the shop uh, before the evacuation was wiring supplies, really. And at the time, it was nowhere near the type of work that I'm doing now. Um, but that kind of rolled in for about a week and a half, two weeks or so. I was just kind of one thing led to another, trying to just make what I could when I could. And... um Poof! Years later, and here we are. <laughs> uh, I would, you know, I was still building engines and gearboxes and things like that. But I, electronics and wiring was always, I don't know. I'd probably say we could both kind of summarize it as maybe a little bit of black black smoke around it. You know, there, there weren't a ton of people, especially as guys like you and I, same age bracket coming up. There wasn't as much information on the internet as there is, for instance, right now. Um, there was, wasn't like inspiration points for people or somebody like, man, look at that. Um, I remember like building first wiring harness, like where the hell do I get these contacts <laughs> from? Or, you know, who makes this? Every, every connector at that point in time was made by Sumitomo. You know, there was no other manufacturer in the world to me. And, um, you learn as you go pretty much. Um, so did you, you, your original shop before you really split off and focused on 100% with race spec with wiring, sure. you were a, an all service general performance workshop doing engine work and, and everything else that goes along with it. Is that, is that what I'm sort of hearing from you? Yeah, that's a fair summary. Um, okay. it was, you know, I opened, I think in like 2007, um, fairly busy, did a lot of, you know, drag racing, streetcars, Hondas, Nissans, whatever. And um, yeah, and general service, I guess, would be fair, fair point. Some race prep, some engine assembly, some full car builds, you know, whatever needed to go in there. A lot of turbo kits, clutches, blah, blah, blah. Um, so coming up to that point, what's your sort of background or is there any formal training that's gone on? And let, let's more sort of focus maybe on the wiring side because that, that's our, our podcast topic for here. Yeah. Is there any sort of formal background training that you did in terms of automotive wiring or is this all entirely self-taught? 
Um, if I'm going to be honest, it's entirely uh, self-taught and kind of a, a passion for learning and trying to excel. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think a, a point to make is conversation I had with one of my buddies the other day was you know, this aftermarket automotive. One of the greatest advantages to it and also one of the scariest parts of it is there is no barrier to entry. Anybody yeah. with some money behind them can – Especially nowadays with Instagram and Facebook and you can boost ads and you make yourself look like you're a multi-million dollar company and you're working out of grandma's basement and your drawers at night. Um, so for me, um, you know, I, I, I've always found it to be, you know, wanted to excel, be really, really, really good at one thing. Didn't want to be a jack of all. I really yep. wanted to focus and, um, you know, there is training out there now. I mean, you guys have got a course. I've consulted on another course in the past, yep. and that's amazing. I think it's great. I, I don't I don't find it to be uh, negatively impacting to this business that we're all in. Um, I think from my perspective, because when we first founded High Performance Academy, it was it was solely on tuning, and then we grew into the other areas that we're, we now cover. And back at the time, I was still running my tuning workshop, and we had people say to us, Look, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're going to be taking business away from yourselves. And sure. we actually saw completely the opposite. And I think I'd be interested to get your perspective on this. I think a lot of people, and we'll focus on wiring here, want a professional motorsport harness built. And you know they, they look at some of the, the training available and Often, like a, a portion will then take it upon themselves, but a lot of people will also realize, hey, look, this is a lot more to this than I thought. I am just going to pay a professional to do it. And there's two advantages there. First of all, you're now, as you race back as Joel, where you're doing customer work, uh, you're now dealing with an educated customer who's got a better understanding of what's involved. And from the customer's perspective, they actually now have a better understanding of the time and the materials that go into making one of these harnesses. So they're, they're, they're not now going to have a better understanding of what, why the price point is where it is. Is that, is that sort of reasonable? Yeah, I think you're pretty spot on with that. Um, it's funny because as we're sitting here and I'm listening to you fully digesting what you're saying and I'm nodding my head, like, yep, yep, you're spot on. You mentioned, you know, training and where'd you learn or whatnot. Um, it's no secret that there's a big overlap in motorsport and defense and aerospace as far as the materials the techniques, training requirements that you might have, depending on you know types of contracts works that you can get. I remember one of uh, many many years ago, I found um, some old Tony James built harnesses floating around on uh, eBay, and I scooped them up. I'm like, man, these are relics, you know. Sure. And arguably, the greatest training that you could have is ripping apart something that somebody else made that's at the top of an industry set point, regardless of the time frame that it's in. Right. Yeah. Um, we're nineties thousands or now. And I think that, like you said, if the, if the customer has a better understanding of what actually is going into it, then the, uh, the smoke and mirrors around it kind of dissipates a bit. And we're focused more on who can provide me what in the best fashion that meets my budget. And I don't necessarily just mean money, but I mean my budget on the time that I'm going to allow it to take 
the yep. professionalism that I'm going to expect to get from the other end of this transaction. And then sure, of course, my, 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 my dollar, how much am I willing to spend on this? Um, to have the customer have that understanding is extremely important on a seamless transaction. It's also a little bit, I guess you could say counterproductive because it can stir up a lot of people, you know, Hey, I could go do this. Yeah. You very well may be able to, and you might be able to do it really, really well. You might be able to surprise yourself, surprise your peers and start another business from it. Who knows? Um, I found that in being in this industry for as long as I have been, I think the thing that people value most is accountability and they want someone to be on the other end of the phone to answer questions uh, or possibly, you know, in very common this day and age, just point blame. And if someone doesn't know about anything, the first thing they're going to do is blame the thing that they don't understand. Right. So we're working with complex engines, complex cars, uh, in some cases, very complex wiring systems. And that's a, that's a really easy scapegoat for people. So I think it can be a great thing. Um, I think historically in the past, it's been something of, uh, a bit too much of an unknown to get too much attention. Uh, by, by now, by way of, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg and the internet and guys like you guys, um, I think that a lot more people have access to the information required for them to, make these decisions and uh, takeaways on their own. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're dead right. And I've seen this across you know, everything I've been involved with during the 20 odd years I've been in the industry. Back, back in the earlier days, we, the internet wasn't where it was now. We didn't have Instagram. And the resources out there, YouTube you know, videos on, on how to build wiring harnesses or tune engines, just you know, that, that, that wasn't a thing. It didn't exist. So it really was a, a learn by trial and error uh, stage and, and I, I'm guessing that's probably sort of what you went through as well you're, you're interesting that point you made about reverse engineering basically a harness that had been made to the right level and, and kind of figuring out what went into it and and how how it was constructed like that's a really powerful way of learning there are however some some information resources out there which, which aren't particularly new uh t connectivities code of practice papers uh, yeah. which cover for example concentric twisting uh, how how useful are those uh when you are learning in your opinion i think they're i think they're terrific i mean we reference them regularly so you've got you know your nasa standards um which is there, there, there's a lot of good stuff in there. If you get down to like the nitty gritty of it, there's also a lot of things that, uh, people want to hold on to very, uh, specific technical reasons for doing things in one segment or one market that yes, makes sense in, in that end, but doesn't make sense in what we're doing. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we talk about this mill spec wiring. Okay. Cool. Mill spec wiring. I, I've very seldomly seen a, electrical harness on a uh, motorsport application that would actually meet or exceed a mill standard. <laughs> um, I think from my perspective that that term, and we're really careful with how we use it in our course and how we explain it, but it, it's gone from what it was supposed to be, which is 
literally a military specification to now a buzzword that I, I hear thrown around way yeah. too frequently by people who really don't have a full comprehension of what a military specification is. Maybe you could talk talk to that a little bit. What 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 is a proper mil spec harness by the letter of the of the the specification? Yeah, well, I mean. So oddly enough, that's where the company name of Respec came from. Uh, I couldn't, in good conscience, be like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I make mill spec wiring." I did not. I do not. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe we do. Um, to, to summarize back though, for anybody who maybe doesn't have, um, I'm making a mental note, but just to summarize back for a second, for anybody that didn't have that other information that we were talking about. So, you know, you've got the NASA standards. Um, there's also the the NAVAIR stuff. Um, mm-hmm. There's the TECOPs, which are amazing. Um, and they're directly available on TE site. You just have to do a little bit of digging. It's white sheet. So, you know, it's only as helpful to you as the textbook would have been in school. Uh, which for me was never, never really that helpful. Um, and then, you know, on top of it, you've got your IPC and WHMA 620. Um, and there's some other standards that guys want to get behind them. I, I think it's great. Um, but again, you have to kind of pick and choose what you're really going to focus on there. And um, I, in my opinion, when you're adapting techniques to use in a completely different type of marketplace, I think it can be a little bit dangerous, especially when you get, you know, internet and trolls and all that techie stuff involved. People want to just grasp onto stuff that they they may or may not understand. It's like, oh, that's a big word. Let me just I'm gonna run with that. And then, you know, you'll you'll get a guy, for instance, that maybe reads the NASA book and reads some really good documentation that they have there regarding solder. And now all of a sudden he is Sauter's new poster child and nobody is going to break him. Um, so, you know, to get back on what we were talking about regarding the military work, um, you know, there's cable ties out there that carry a mill rating. Uh, you know, yeah, you're using wire that is one of tens on tens on tens on tens of different variants that is acceptable for military use. Um, if you've seen a military proposal or a bill of materials, I mean, we're we're not just talking like, oh, uh, yeah, I have mil spec wire. I mean, they want to know where the material came from. They want to know when it came from. They want to know the batch it came from. There's traceability involved. There's conformity involved. And I uh, even, you know, guys at top, top, top of this that are very proud to do defense work as well. It's a very prestigious thing. It's not just like, you know, the government of any country is going to be going around knocking on a door being like, oh, you're the cheapest guy and you work weird hours and answer my DMs in the middle of the night. Yeah, I want to deal with you. It doesn't work like that. Um, the On the training aspect, I, I think hands-on approach is really everything. And now, you know, things are very different. I remember to a, a video, I've probably watched this thing maybe two, three hundred times of a of a guy that I now have had some communication with uh that bf1 posted i think it was in like 2012 or 2013 and it was like a time lapse of uh i think it was aston martin tpms loom that they did yep. and i had some you know typical techie techno music playing in the background and it was sped up a little bit but it was better than like the flight of the bees playing <laughs> and outside of things like that for the past seven years like mm, Nobody saw that unless you were in the walls of a harnessing house, yeah, primarily absolutely. primarily in the UK. I mean, here in the States, yeah, there's, there's some big guys, 
but I feel that um, I feel like it, it's just invaluable. And now, you know, reach of the internet, what you're able to achieve, how quickly you can find, for instance, a codes of practice from TE compared to 10 years ago, where you'd be having a call many, many, many times to get any of that released. It's really neat. Um, I think it's encouraging too to people up and coming because there's way more work out there than I think uh, many of us are able to fulfill at the time. Yeah, there's no doubt it, it's becoming easier and easier to get access to that information and to learn, uh, which is multiplying the number of people we're seeing now working at the, this level, which, which is great. As you say, there's uh, there's a huge amount of work out there, so uh, plenty of room in the market. Just coming back to the, the military specifications, so I think we've, we've kind of got – uh, a good understanding now from what you've said of that but essentially uh, paraphrasing what you're saying here is that while yes there is a military specification uh, when it comes to building wiring harnesses for an automotive application even at the highest levels of, of race car construction we don't need to be working to the absolute letter of the intent with the military specification is that is that sort of reasonable to say? I'd, 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 I'd hold that place an argument on it for sure. I think is, is it, you're, you're taking one application, you're using a set of standards and primarily the most important aspect of the standards is the material specifications that we're working with. Right. Yeah. So we're using like Rake MDR 25. Cool. So these are resistant benchmark in many, many, many different sectors. We're using that. Most guys use a non-temperature selectable heat gun and scorch the hell out of the tubing while they're shrinking it. So at that point, you have you're no longer within the guidelines of producing a quote unquote mill spec harness. You're doing something completely different. Utilizing the material does not equate to a finished product that can carry that same terminology. And and I joked about with it before when we came up with the name for the company, it was it was intentional. It was like, I don't want to falsely be out there like, yeah. like a charlatan, like, hey, look what I'm doing. Like, you're not doing that. So stop saying it. It's dangerous. Mm. Um, yeah. So that, that yeah, I, I think that you're spot on there. So uh, yeah, it, it's I, I think what you've just mentioned there is probably easy to overlook. The, the mill spec it's more than just the materials you're using. It's also uh, the the construction techniques and the tooling as well. So it's an entire, all encompassing aspect. So I, I think, you know, again, if we're not if you're not doing military defence work and, and you don't need to do it, I mean, it probably uh, many aspects was actually going to needlessly add to the time and cost of a of a harness, which otherwise would be absolutely more than sufficient for a race application. Hence, race spec, which makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for sure. Um, I also think it's really important too, though, to, you know, if, so we deal with a very large, diverse group of customers. We have guys that we do one-off bespoke work and we never do anything like it ever again. And we have production orders in for thousands of pieces at the same time, the same bit, regardless of whom we're dealing with and what they've done with us in the past, if it's repeat business it's most important to identify what the needs of the project are. So if you're a club level guy and you're going out there and you're having fun on the weekends, you don't necessarily need to be budgeting for $500 mating connector sets on your firewall um, to, 
to fit the status quo of motorsport, mil spec, blah, 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 and using a, an autosport or serio connector or whatever. Where in the same breath is if you're campaigning a card that costs $200,000 and you've put another 200000 into it and you want to you know, skate by with snakeskin fiberglass sleeving and like legitimate weather pack connectors. I'm not, not, no blanket statement. You know what I mean? Black housing, green horrific seal. And that's what you think is a, is a solid investment into your electrical and wiring system to complement the rest of the car. There's a huge breakaway there. Um, so I, I think it's really important for people to understand what, what is required for what they're doing and then determine what way they want to get there. So, I mean, this, I'm not going to lie. It's really cool. All this stuff and the technology has been able to come from it. You look at, you know, wiring composites and a lot of the wireless technology. Now it's incredible at the same point. It's also really expensive. And if you're dealing with people that are skilled at what they're doing and have the experience to go along with it, there's a really big price tag to go there as well. So yeah, I feel like I it think could be, it, I think the price point could be a deterrent for a lot of guys. Um, and yeah, well, and, and, it, and it absolutely is. But I think what you've just said there is something that's easy to overlook. And again, you know, the, the internet and the information we have access to is both a blessing and a curse. And now, uh, guys and girls coming up as motorsport enthusiasts, and you know they're looking at accounts like yours on Instagram and all of the other people doing great high quality motorsport wiring, and it sort of gets to a point where they're looking at cars that are in magazines and at SEMA, and everything's got one of these proper professional motorsport harnesses, so they think that that is the only way to go. And of course, as you mentioned, I mean, it's relevant to what you're trying to do and the budget you're working with and the cost of the car. And as you say, I mean, if you've got a $200,000 race car, well, yeah, I mean, you want the best of the best and reliability is key. But at the same time, if you're just getting started and you've got a $5,000 Honda Civic and you're taking it to the old track day, well, it's probably not going to make a lot of sense to uh, go and put a harness in it that's worth maybe several times the cost of the car. So these are the things we have to weigh up. And as you mentioned there, you don't necessarily need uh, a $500 bulkhead connector in order to, to wire up your car. So I think those, those things sure. do need to be weighed up. Now, yep. I just want to come come back a, a little bit. So a question we quite often get asked in, in some of our webinars is about the qualifications required. And as you've said, you're, you're self-taught, which essentially is, is exactly how I've I've learned my skills or built, built my own skills. Uh, sure. And the question we quite often get asked is around uh, auto electricians. So mm-hmm. with an auto, auto automotive electrician, you can you, that's actually a qualification you can go through, at least in New Zealand here, uh, an mm-hmm. apprenticeship program. You do your papers at a polytechnic or something similar. And you come out the end after you've done X number of hours and all of your credits with a piece of paper that says to the world that you're an auto electrician. What's your take on, does does that help you? Is it a, a, a requirement? I mean, clearly you haven't gone down that path yourself, but when it comes to general auto electrical work versus building these harnesses, these detailed harnesses, is there an overlap there or are they separate skills? What What's your thoughts? No, I think it, I think it's, uh, there's a direct overlap. And it's funny because like, 
there's there's guys out there that can probably make a really bitchin' layup and serve the sloops to their heart's content and don't understand Ohm's law or the practicality of it. So it's <laughs> you sit there like, well, wait a minute. So people are always going to gravitate towards where their interest lies, right? And like, I I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a really, really, really easy example of a gap. So there's an overlap, but there's also a gap. I feel like yeah. a very easy example of a gap would be, um, let's 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 just use a blanket statement of wire size, mm-hmm. right? And how I'm not poking any at anyone, but you know there are guys out there that understand impacity, they understand voltage drop, they understand material differences that'll that give you a different allowance for many different things related to those. And then there's the guy. It's like no 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 no. It's a high impedance fuel injector. And in my training in X school, uh, I was taught that, you know, uh, standardized wire from an OE is 18 gauge for this. And someone could sit there and be like, okay, well, let's break this down and do 14, four divided by 12. And you tell me what we're actually dealing with. And they want to revert back to the OE. And then the OE, essentially, their only job was ever to make a car that is going to last for a long time. Um, while also doing it in the most profitable ways that they could. So they're going to use an inferior product and they're going to uh, err on the side of caution, really. So yeah. that gap, I think, is is equally as problematic as the overlap um, because the overlap then causes the automotive electrician to perhaps want to dabble into the, their unknown and what could be outside of their comfort zone. Now, that guy could be way better than a Sparky working on an F1 team on actually finding an issue and, and, and repairing it in a timely fashion. Definitely. But are they used to the connectors? Would they have an issue You know, having a loom that's just got 80 white wires with idents that are only at polar ends and no way to really designate what is going on? They don't have a – I mean, I don't know what you guys use there, but um, a service manual, we could call it, right? They don't have that to immediately reference. Uh, there's no flow chart on a PDF virtual tool that you know Mazda had, for instance, to tell us really on, uh, okay, A was wrong. Now what do I do? And now what yeah. after that? So the, the basic principles, I think, are incredibly important to the foundation of any of this. And uh, you, gotta, you have to crawl before you walk, before you sprint type scenario. Um, it sounds like, you know, over there, they, they don't have that really here. Maybe you vary state to state. I know, like, for instance, in New Jersey, you you could just open up an auto shop. There's no rhyme or reason. In New York, you need to get, like, licensed by the state to do automotive work. Um, body shops are different, you know. But I think that it's important for there to be some, some sort of accreditation because it shows oh, that I agree. the person that you're dealing with, you know, stuck with it but in the same end like i didn't go to college i know people who went to college that i can't even hold a conversation with because you know they're they're book smart fine but accreditation doesn't necessarily define a person's success too um so i couldn't agree double-ended sword you know yeah but it's funny you mentioned that you're you're primarily self-taught yeah yeah absolutely oh i I mean what i'd bring this back to is at the start of my career, uh, I was building engines and 
tuning. Now, tuning, I think it's fair to say worldwide, there's there's no accreditation, and that's really what HPA was born from because we saw so much garbage out there in the tuning industry because 99% of tuners just didn't have a clue what they were doing. But when you look at the other aspects of performance automotive, well, when it comes to engine building, yes, again, it, just like an auto electrician, there are engine reconditioning workshops and the people who work there have got accreditation that says that they know how to rebuild an engine but and I and I think this this is probably very similar in my opinion to the auto electrician versus someone the likes of yourself building professional motorsport wiring harnesses there's similarities but then there's differences and if you took your average uh, engine reconditioner and I'm not trying to knock anyone here but what they do probably for 95% of their life is they rebuild relatively low horsepower garden variety road car engines where the tolerances aren't quite so critical and they send it out the door and it'll do another 100,000 miles, no problem. But if you try and apply that same logic to building, uh, taking a 300 horsepower engine and, and modify it to make 1200 horsepower, well, you know, things are very different. The components we require are different uh, and the clearances, tolerances we're working with also are very different. I, I see exactly that same crossover between the auto electrician and then someone building wiring harnesses at your level. You know, the similarities and then there's a hell of a lot of differences and I think you sort of highlighted their tools, materials and techniques uh, are different. I don't imagine too many auto electricians uh, came through their training uh, learning how to use uh, you know, DMC crimp tools and work with Autosport connectors. Concentric twisting I'm damn sure is not a technique that's taught. So those are the areas that, that the, there's the gap as you put it I think. Um, mm-hmm. I think... What I I would say is really important though is where the auto electrician probably does have the potential to have some advantage is they are grounded in those basics which you mentioned and we, just as an example, uh, I won't name names but we interviewed a while back, might have been a couple of years ago now uh, for someone to work with us on some of our wiring course production and uh, this person had come from a very big name company where they were producing wiring harnesses uh, that were being used in F1. So obviously person knew inside and out what they were doing. Uh, what it became really apparent when we actually got down to chatting with them is that they were given uh, a design document for the harness that they were to construct which told them everything they needed to know to go and make it and they could make it and it would be perfect. But if we instead faced them with uh, a club level car with an engine in it and no wiring harness at all and asked them to design and build the harness, that was a very different skill set and that was yeah. where they, they didn't have that knowledge of, well, let's say a Nissan 360-degree optical cam angle sensor. They've probably never seen one and wouldn't know how it works. So, again, like there's, there's two sides to this and I do believe, regardless whether you're into wiring or tuning or engine building, that having that background, the basics, the fundamental knowledge is, is really key. But also, you know, for the auto electricians out there, who are good at what they do and want to build into this new skill set, I think it's also important to sort of be, be realistic and, and know what you don't know as well. Yeah, I think that's a really fair takeaway on it. Um, you know, one of the things that jumped out to me about what you were saying on essentially, you know, people knowing and then not knowing, it, an auto electrician's job is effectively, if I'm understanding the position there, because again, we don't have the terminology sure. over here. 
Um, so uh, if I'm understanding this correctly, an auto, I mean, it's the same thing as an automotive technician here, right? Your job is to make repairs. Is that, yes. is that a fair assumption? Diagnose and repair. I, I think, yeah, th- things have probably changed as cars have become more technical and again I'm absolutely not trying to bag on auto uh, electricians or auto technicians here but I think it's also fair to say that probably the majority of uh, the current day auto electrical work is is actually on diagnostics and simply replacing parts and a lot of that time is going to be spent on an OE level scan tool Uh, so their diagnostic skill set is is exceptional but um, you're probably getting a a little bit deep down that rabbit hole but yeah that's my sort of take on things okay well for the record I'm not taking jabs either because I have a lot of customers down in New Zealand and Australia and I don't want them mad at me (laughs) Um, but so you know if an electrician, their job in, in an automotive instance, like if an, if an OE makes a car and an automotive electrician's job is in place to what? It's to service the car. Okay. So we're talking about diagnose, potentially repair. Okay. Yeah. When we, when we design and build a loom, our job is to make sure that there never needs to be a diagnosis done, that this yeah. will just last. It will outlast the engine. It will outlast chassis. It will outlast the car. Now, Things like, you know, flying connecting rods, window that are blocks and all those, that always seems to get in the way quite quickly. But there's a different path that either of these positions could go. So you have someone who's, whose job, like you just said, they can build to the top level. Can they design to go along with that? Could they design to hold the candle to that? There's a huge gap there as well. In my opinion... Working on this stuff, you know, we, we take a lot of pride in our documentation. We supply all of it at, at completion to our customer. There's no hiding anything there. Um, it's evidently been, I, I don't want to use the term ripped off because you can't really knock off a, a format, but it, it's been taken as well. And repeatability is extremely important here. We build to a quarter inch tolerance and whether that means that, you know, we have a chicken sketch drawing because the project just did not allow for the budget of man hours and time to design a fancy Visio drawing. And, you know, it's literally just pen to paper, got some stuff, or it's one of our really good clients that literally sent us a picture of a bar napkin one night of what they needed (laughs) We're going to build right off of that. It's very important on our end for repeatability, whether that means that we're building hundreds of them or whether that means that we built it and six years later, car caught fire, right? Customer crashed and there's a fuel fire and it burnt half the harness and we've got to replace a portion of the car's loom that we could go back, pull their original hard file, pull their digital file off a computer as well, look at a bill of materials, look at a drawing and replicate that exact piece for them. Yeah. So the design end, arguably, in my opinion, is way more important than the skill set end because the skill set end should only really be derived from how much you know about why you're designing something the way that you are and why you're using the material that you are. So, you know, a, a really easy example to that for me, at least, is fuel systems, right? We get calls all the time about guy it, can can I put zero twenty five into my fuel tank? No. I mean you can, you shouldn't. Well what else is there? There's a ton of other tubing. You know, off the top of my head, RW two hundred. Well what is that? Well just because you didn't see a hashtag for it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and it's there and it and it serves a purpose. 
So again, understanding why you're doing something is way different than, uh, you know, copycat, carbon copy, whatever you want to call it, following the leader. Uh, there's, there's a big, big difference there, which I find myself um, kind of looking at frequently because, you know, a lot of our clientele too. So speaking on the company a little bit, um, so we do production work, private label, as well as public. Uh, we have some contractual work that, you know, is completely off limits. We have bespoke work, which is these onesie twosies, really cool projects. Uh, yeah. you know, they'd be like your highlight reel type deal. And then on top of it, we do material supply. So we service other harness houses. We service novice guys that are getting their feet wet. We service guys that moonlight building harnesses and they do an awesome job as a side gig because they're, you know, normal nine to five is simply just too good of a job to walk away from. So I deal with these customers and this material supply end a lot. And, you know, we, we, we kind of have to get through the BS of people buying stuff that they think they need versus what they really need. And especially now talking about logistics and shortages and supply and people needing to source alternates and not even knowing what they're buying. It, it becomes very evident that there's a gap there. So digress a bit, but back to the point, I think that some form of accreditation is important. I think that uh, an outlet of knowledge um, by way of a normalized source that actually knows what they're talking about is equally important as well. Yeah, I, I think the the issue, and you've sort of touched on there, is a lot of people who are diving into this with no prior experience and, and are trying to become self-taught and they're doing it from you know, Instagram posts, you, mm-hmm. you, you're missing that background knowledge of, you know, the materials, as you mentioned, the the, sure. com, the options instead of DR25, et cetera. That's the stuff that's sort of yeah, hard, hard to learn if you're just trying to follow someone's Instagram post. Yep. Right, I, I, I want to go, go back a step here, and, and you've already alluded to this with your NASA standard, and and we we hear this quoted quite often in, in a lot of our social media posts when we're talking about solder versus crimping and mm-hmm. the NASA standard for solder. But before we, we dive into that and, and why it may or may not be too relevant for our purposes, uh, let, let's get your take on the the age-old debate, solder versus crimping. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, my takeaway, both have instances where they should and shouldn't be used uh definitively solder should have nothing to do with the termination on a on a motorsport application i don't care if it's a club car or a professional car we need to use it to affix components to pcbs check we have solder cup connections uh so we're talking like a hermetic connector that Mm -hmm. there is no dielectric so you have to solder cup and then you need to terminate it to spec check. Uh, we're talking about like, you know, de facto standard UTC connector, solder cup, absolute pain in the balls. Check. You do not add it to a crimp. I can, anybody with decent equipment can prove that on a pull test. Um, nine times out of 10 people aren't using good equipment to solder anyway. So, you know, there's work that we do that we have to solder. There's work that we do that we choose to solder and, practical implementation 
of these projects and then learning from them and finding failures is the only way that people will ever really walk away from it. I hate one of the things I I don't I hate using the word hate as crazy as that sounds sounds stupid out loud. Um, but I, I really dislike this. You know, well, I've been doing this for X amount of time and nothing bad has ever happened. That doesn't mean anything good. It means it means either you're very fortunate that you know your car hasn't burnt down, or it also means that you didn't do it well enough to begin with. Because if you did, it would have failed by now. So that that's the the main argument that we get back. And as you say, it's it's a it's a pretty futile argument when we're talking about solder versus crimp. Oh well, I I soldered a wire twelve years ago on my car and it hasn't broken, so obviously solder is is absolutely fine. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sorry that that's not really a valid argument. You've got one one uh, data point there that that happened yeah. to be okay. And we're not sitting here saying that if you solder two wires together or a or a crimp you, you solder that it's instantly going to fail. Of course, that's that's absolutely nonsense. But Sure. It opens you up for the potential of failure and generally in motorsport everything we're doing is trying to find ways to mitigate risk and reduce the chances of failure. So when faced with solder versus crimp, you know, in most instances uh, the crimp is going to be a more reliable solution, uh, particularly when we, we get exposed to vibration. Which I guess leads me to the next thing is what what is the actual failure mode of, of solder? Why why is it problematic in our motorsport application? Uh, well, I would say we, we would have to determine on what what instance of it being used we're talking about here. Are we talking about it being used in, in like in place of a splice? So we have two wires that need to be joined that weren't originally the same wire. Yeah, let's talk about that about because I think terminating at a crimp. Yeah, I, I think probably the splices is probably one of the more common areas we'd see it in a, an enthusiast level wiring harness so maybe let's talk about that and then the second would be yeah where the the common option I, I hear talked about is crimping a connector and then adding a dab of solder because obviously the crimp itself is is not going to be strong enough so let's talk about those two options if we can Joel <laughs> sure um so I, it's funny because I'm remembering something from I don't know the old old shop so we're you know 14 years ago maybe I remember soldered something couldn't figure out what was going on and then ended up being apparent that two solder splices extensions if you will that were next to each other you know you get that nasty little wick out the side and you're not paying enough attention with your single wall polyolefin and it pokes through and you're not really noticing and then it pokes through the next wire that's right next to it and you've got a nice fat short there that's not evident and it's hard to track down and you get the guys that are like, well, I know how to do, you know, Western Union splice, and that would never happen if you did it right. And I go, okay, cool. Um, splicing, crimping is superior to solder in any way, shape, or form that you want to have that argument, especially when it comes to, you know, a, a, a tensile strength yield that you'll have out of it. And I touched on it before is, you know, regarding equipment use. So let's basic soldering iron the soldering iron that you buy off amazon is not you know the same as a hako for instance if we hako whatever you want to call it if we'll we'll, we'll keep it at that mm-hmm. so we're talking temperature control um we're talking the material that you're working with are you working with like a txl wire is it a tefsil wire what's the jacket rated to how hot did you really make that conductor did you pretend did you not is the wire pretend there's so many factors that are going to drop in there that 
it's an uncontrollable process in my opinion. Right. Yeah. So you soldered, you know what it's like. Yeah. It's also not to say that you have to be able to be decent at it, especially if you're working in this niche, because there are instances where you have to use it. There are instances where you're building, you know, an off the wall motorsport harness and it needs to terminate to X connector that there's no terminal available to meet the wire size that was specced on a call sheet. And you have to get creative in how it's going to get terminated. And it's not just like, okay, it looks good. You have to test it and put it on some equipment and make sure that it's going to be able to get your peace of mind at night and not going to keep you up. As far as adding it to a crimp, um, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie over the years, I've probably been tempted to as well. Um, it doesn't, these terminals were never designed for that. So you're, you're bringing in a completely separate component into a process that was designed by a fairly large company, one of many that said, okay, this is how this is going to be made. And this is how it's going to work. And you're essentially by adding solder to that saying, well, I know better. You one would just I, I say think, you don't. Is that fair? Yeah. I, I think my take on it is it, it probably stems from a lack of confidence, which is probably sure. rightly so as well. But you know, the the other argument we hear just as often is, well, I sold it a wire 12 years ago and it didn't fail. Uh, the other one is, uh, well, I've seen crimps fail. And, and sure, sure, I mean, crimp, crimps can fail. But I think the problem why, why these people are seeing crimps fail is that they're not using the correct consumables and they're not using the correct crimp tooling. So exactly. at, at the, the more professional level, we're, we're using proper... Uh, tooling it's calibrated for the application and essentially you're creating a a cold weld inside of that crimp that completed crimp and the individual conductor strands should fail uh, before well before the the wires will ever pull out of the crimp so if you've got that and it's been done correctly there's no need to add solder and it's not adding any strength in fact we're only actually making the finished crimp worse yeah, I, I, I think that that's good take two. Um, you know, you mentioned proper tooling. Yeah, it's not just like, oh, I, I have a crimper. Yeah. You know, okay, we've, we've got hundreds of crimpers. You know, what was it designed for? Are you using it for the right terminal? Is it for that terminal, but for that wire size, using it on the right nest size? There's a lot of factors that roll into it. Um, I, I, I like what you said about, you know, people using it in, in instances of lack of confidence. Maybe they just know that, you know, hey, this wasn't the tool for the job, but I'm doing it. I can tell you, though, that, you know, you don't take, you know, you mentioned Daniels before, Benchmark Company. You've got mm. a ton of tools from them. You you don't come across just random failures when you're using calibrated equipment um, or quality equipment. And I think part of the appeal with aftermarket anything, whether it's automotive or marine or power sports, is that you can always get it done for really, really, really cheap if you want to. And you go on Amazon and you buy, you know, a, a iWIS crimper, doesn't hold a candle to a Daniels, um, whatever that Jeffy tools, mil spec tools, whatever, doesn't hold a candle as well. And there's reason behind it. It's not just like, oh, 
we we slap this on it. It's funny because people people will question that, and then you know they want to go. They're hungry. They want to go to dinner, and they'll go to McDonald's or they'll go to a steakhouse and spend forty dollars on a steak. They don't question why that steak costs more. They're just yeah. like, hey, I'm happy to do that. That's what I want. And when it comes back to, uh, I guess. <laughs> finding a cheaper way around things, people will get very imaginative with what they're okay with. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's all just about understanding the the risk versus reward. Uh, and it can be a little bit difficult to stomach, particularly for the average enthusiast who maybe wants to just build one harness. I mean, the reality of that, if you want to build you know, a professional harness using Autosport connectors and you're only doing one of them, it's it's possibly almost cheaper in the end to pay someone to do the job properly rather than go out and buy all of the individual crimp tools and positioners, et cetera, that you may need for a particular harness. So you do need to weigh that up. But I mean, sure. what what also is the point in a $500 Autosport connector set and then crimping it with some $20 Amazon special crimp tool that's mm-hmm. that's going to inherently create a reliability problem in a connector that is as expensive as it is to try and avoid sure. reliability problems. I mean, I, that makes no sense to me, but we do see that. No, I, I agree with you on it. And I think a big portion of it touches back on what I mentioned in the beginning of our chat, which was accountability, right? It's very different to be pissed off at yourself than to have a client who's paid you a fair sum of money questioning why something failed they did they got a dnf at a race and they're out you know thousands of dollars from trying to get to a race for a weekend yeah and if a hobbyist guy or growl can say well i knew i took the cheap way out and it only cost me a couple hundred bucks to get here and i had fun then they've justified their move on their end and that's that's fine it's it's just it's a polar difference to see this stuff and get okay at it and then be like, yeah, I could do this on the side and earn money to having an actual business based around it and being able to offer customers peace of mind, value and expertise. Um, So I think that, you know, at the end of the day, some people there are there are guys out there too though that they love tools. It's like you know the Snap-on truck. Oh, it's yeah. like you can't you can't look away from it. It's just <laughs> it, it's a magnet. Yeah. There's some guys out there that no problem. I got to buy this tool to do this thing once. Awesome. I mean, I'm a victim of that myself. Um, but there's also a big desire for people wishing that it wasn't that way with us. And you know, you mentioned like Daniels. Um, we've recently done some more in depth work with them on a company to company basis with some product and. Even I, I'm sitting there and like, I had no idea some of this stuff was shelf part for them. You know, catalog. It's not just like, oh, I have a blue Daniels crimper. Like, okay, very cool. It, it's much more complex than that. So again, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's risk versus reward. It's also um, understanding and knowing why you're doing something and not just following the flow of things. Um, and we've looked at different ways to try to, you know, well, we're, we're working on something fairly large right now, which should help uh, this discussion of, you know, how to terminate things and why certain tools will cost what they do versus others. Um, but again, there, there's this overlap and then the, the resulting gap is always going to have these two polar factions, right? Fighting each other. Well, I never had a problem and well, you're an idiot and I don't care what you say. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. And I think that as, 
this market sector grows and it probably is it's, it's definitely a sliver of aftermarket automotive as a whole but you see things branch off right and you see companies pop up that cater to one polar end of the spectrum versus the other sure. um and finding people that are you know there, there's a market for everybody everybody wants to get in there um you know you'll look at we we focus on making a very high quality product to the point that when we private label, some of the clients that we have choose to advertise that we're building their harnesses for them because we've put so much work into creating a good reputation for our product. And there are other guys out there who just have simply a maybe they're better at business. I don't know, but it's a it's a volume mentality mm-hmm. where it, it's they're aware that it's not the same product. Um, and guys that like I'm people that I'm talking about, like we're buddies and. I'm thinking about them in my head. I'm just not going to say names, yeah. um, but it's just a different approach. And it doesn't mean that I'm better than them. And it doesn't mean that they're, they're better than me. It just means that we identified two different paths. There was a demand on either end of it. It's scary though, because, you know, you're talking about cars, talking about a lot of horsepower, talking about safety concerns. At the end of the day, it's like, there's livelihood involved in it. You know, like we're all kind of maniacs in our own regard. And the thought of, you know, something happening to another human being because you, I don't know, were half awake while you were terminating something or um, just didn't care enough to do it the way that it was supposed to be done. That's a scary thing, I think. Yeah, I think it's really easy to overlook the potential implications of a failure or you know not not doing the job properly when you are building a wiring harness but yeah there, there can be some some very ser- serious uh, outcomes so you always yeah. do need to keep that in mind um, I certainly don't want to ever be held responsible for uh, a component that I've made potentially hurting someone of course all right um, let, let's come back to another topic that uh, we we get quizzed about a lot which is concentric twisting and I think you know, if, if I look back at you know the the Instagram accounts that I follow of the likes of yourself you know they a concentrically twisted harness makes for a really really attractive Instagram post and I think this is yeah. what has maybe sort of exploded the enthusiast market these people wanting to to build concentrically twisted harnesses. Uh, we also get a lot of people debating that uh, it's pointless, there's no advantage. So uh, first of all, what what is a concentrically twisted harness? And, and secondly, what are the uh, the advantages of doing that? Yeah, sure. So um, it's, it's, it's not... It's not magic. It's what, what's your guy's phrase? It's, it's, it's science, not magic. It's science. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's math. I mean, it's not, it's geometry. It's nothing crazy. Um, it's actually very simple to do. Like you can grab seven of anything that is cylindrical and just twist them in unison in one direction and they will automatically fall into line. You could do that with extension cords. You could do that with 30 gauge type cell wire. doesn't matter. Um, so the, it's a technique that's used. Yes, they talk about it in some of the, you know, NASA standards that we've mentioned. Um, and yes, there are guys that think that that is the definition to a, it's the same people that call their wiring a mill spec harness, but they think that that's the defining factor. There are huge harnessing suppliers that intentionally do not concentrically twist their harnesses for, 
pretty solid reasons. Um, but essentially it's a practice in which you take, you build a core. So we use a basic example of seven, right? So you have your core and you wrap six around it. Now you've got a a bundle of seven wires and now your next layer is going to take six more than your previous layer. So you're going to add 12 more to that and you'll go on and go on and go on. And this can work with single, uh, two pair, three try, quad, um, and so on and so forth. Um, there's a, there's legitimately a chart on there that looks like it was, you know, printed in 1989 or something that you probably know exactly what I'm talking about too, <laughs> that you can follow mm-hmm. line by line and you will get a really bitch and insta spec hashtag worthy harness. Now there is, there is this inherent, you know, okay, is it worth it? Um, definitely makes for a more compact finished product, definitely makes for a more flexible finished product, both of which are really important to the items that we produce at race spec. Yep. In the same regard, it adds a labor burden to the project that could be argued is unnecessary. Uh, depending on the, the size and type of wire that you're working with, it can actually be counterproductive in the sense that if you're not well versed in it and you think that everything is just as, you know, white papers say, you may just feel the need to add a, a shit ton of filler wire to it, at which point you're just increasing size and weight. And then, you know, the conversation of weight comes in. Yes, at, you know, at top, top tier, we're talking grams will matter. And, uh, you know, then, you know, you get a guy with a 3000 horsepower drag car is like, LOL, you know, I'm, I'm adding weight to the front of my car. I need that. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it factors in. So yeah, it's super aesthetically pleasing to do. I can tell you that there's nothing worse than, you know, seeing a, a drawing that calls for a long run, eight to <laughs> 10 feet and knowing that needs to be twisted. Like it's not a fun time. Can we get through it? Do we have tricks? Sure. Um, is there machines that do it for you? No. And can you make something to use with a drill? Not really. No. Um, there's some there's some cool stuff in, in an old TCOP that they don't even have any um, record of, but it's in one of their figures. They're like these bobbins. They kind of reminiscent of like a kind of like an inverted two frisbees against each other. And their theory is that so you'll get your bill of materials, you'll get your cut list, right? Yep. And then you're gonna go cut your wire and then wrap it around these bobbins. So you're building, you're working with a 79 pin autosport. So you're gonna go do this. Let's just say there's no spices. You need to do this 79 times mm-hmm. before you even terminate. It's not practical. Like it doesn't, yeah. there's, it, it's not a thing. So we, depending on who we're building for and what the call is, um, yeah, we'll, we'll often do a, a layup or, you know, twist it out. Um, there's, there's some cheats and some tricks that you can have with it. Um, I would say that. Maybe at the end of the day, there's instances where it's it's a great practice to be able to um, offer. And then I think that there's some instances where it's just a ginormous waste of time, if I'm just to be completely honest. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you can really paint anything in black and white in the motorsport industry and say, this is the way we must do it. And there's a couple of things I'll just take out of what you've said there. So uh, 
I don't know if this is specifically the company you're referring to, but a couple of years back, uh, we visited Renvale in the UK. We mm. were over, over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Renvale, I think, produced the wiring harnesses for every F1 car except maybe Williams, I think. And Yeah, there's a few exceptions. Okay. So you know, you've got a company here working at the absolute highest level where money literally isn't an object. And... Uh, for the F1 harnesses, uh, they're using a parallel twist, not concentrically twisted. Uh, mm-hmm. m- my assumption there is possibly that uh, twofold. One is that there is a, a weight saving by doing so. Uh, by virtue mm-hmm. of the design, even if you take fill away out of the equation, uh, the twist results in more material being used. So a concentrically twisted mm-hmm. harness will, by virtue of its design, weigh more than something that's parallel twist. But also... Uh, the F1 harnesses, uh, a large portion of those are so well supported that a concentrically twisted harness maybe uh, is, is, is not as, as justifiable. So um, that's, that's one aspect that I wanted to mention. And then just coming back to um, the, the filler wire. So for, for those that aren't aware, and you kind of alluded to it, there's a defined number of wires for each uh each new layer you're going to step up by six wires assuming you're using the same conductor size so you can't just get to a layer and 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 have any number it's just not going to work like that so if you haven't done your calculations right you can get to the situation where uh, you find that you actually have to add filler wire that's literally just ballast that's along for the ride that that's what you're getting at yep yeah um yeah sorry if i wasn't clear there is uh and you could do it that way you can also te has uh i think it's called scf yeah, I'm pretty sure it's SCF, but it's like um, it's like a filament. It, it's literally it's not a conductor. There's no copper in it, and they you know we we've ordered custom cable from TE, and they use it in there when you're ordering cable. It has a built a layup built into how the cable is designed and uh, specified. Um, so yeah, it's ballast, right? Now, I mean, there's been times that having that ballast there has completely saved your tail down the road on a repair that's got to get made, and who. All of a sudden, I've got this extra wire that ran 10 feet. I can make use of this. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the argument then becomes uh, regarding weight. Um, you know, we – so there's software, uh, hardware, for instance, that we'll use. There's legitimately a layup calculator built in. And if you if you spend the time with the software designing your harness, it will legitimately tell you what wire needs to go where in the bundle and on what layer um, – so in my opinion, the other side to it is that, you know, we've got some tricks from doing this for so long. Like I could, you could, you could lay down for me the most horrific mess of gauge sizes and quantity counts and give me two, 300 wires, whatever. With enough pre-planning, we could get around it with zero filler wire. There's no, there's no question on that. It will happen. Sure. Um, it's just a matter of how long it's going to take and can you build a customer for it? And can you build a customer for it consciously? Meaning like, it's not just like, oh, it took me 30 hours to build this harness. Did it need to take you 30 hours? Like, could you have gotten done what they what they were looking to do for their application? Could you have got it done any faster? I'm not saying to rush, but it, 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 I mean, I could go back and look at labor burdens on all of the harnesses that we've ever made that are serialized. And I could tell you how much time was spent doing a layup on one versus another. Um, I think, you know, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall for a company like Renvale, BF1, and these big guys over there. I, would, I mean, I would just sponge it. But 
I think that there's a couple of factors that play into it. Um, and again, this is, this is not like an official stance on it, but when you, the smaller gauge wire, when you're working with, it is incredibly fragile. And the more handling that has to go into it is the more possibility that you're going to damage that conductor during assembly. I'm not even talking about like, oh, I'm terminating. I'm talking about you're twisting wires and, you know, you've got 15 foot cut lengths. It gets to be a bit hard to manage. Um, the smaller wire, it's almost like you look at it too hard and it starts moving in ways that you didn't want it to. So I think that that possibly plays a bit of a role. And, you know, you, you spoke in part on, um, well, not directly related to serviceability, but I think you were getting there. At least that was my takeaway at, you know, high level motorsport. Perhaps a engineer at some point got in touch with somebody in accounting and said, well, look, it's taken this many man hours to build it this way. But if we're replacing the part for no reason other than just general maintenance at this interval, we've effectively washed out 80% of that. So let's just forego it and go in a different route. Yeah. A lot of guys don't comprehend like this is a level of motorsport where it's, it's, it surpasses general maintenance. It's, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line at any given point in time. They're replacing things to prevent the possibility that it ever could be thought about to replace it. Right. <laughs> well, exactly. We, when we visited Renvale, we had a technician at that point uh, building a harness for the next year's uh, Mercedes Very F1 cool. car. And they were at that point this is before the cost caps came in so i imagine things may be different now but uh, the entire harness was replaced in the car between wow. race weekends and i can only imagine the cost like nose to end full full tail at that level wow uh, amazing that was what we were told so uh, you know that that's the kind of of drive they're looking for for reliability i mean conversely you could also argue well are you better to go with uh, a harness that's been in the car for a race weekend and proven to be <laughs> yeah. reliable uh the potential for a failure in a brand new brand new component uh you know that, that's another argument which probably actually leads me into the, the next topic is is testing uh, and validating your harnesses see what you did there uh <laughs> just just mm. nicely segue across into that so uh, you know we, when we're building harnesses one of the the things that um, we'll typically do is always uh, you know a continuity test basically ensuring that did we actually put the right conductor the right uh, terminal in the right spot particularly with some of these uh, high density autosport connectors uh, yeah, it can, it can be quite tricky, and it's not difficult to accidentally end up with a, a contact in the wrong location. So, a continuity test essentially that's a, a good sanity check that yep, uh, the the correct conductor is going to the correct location. Sure. You go a little bit deeper than that though at race spec. Can you tell us what your your test strategy is yeah, and what sure. that entails? So, um, well, going to go back to the base point of answering this and that it's all about application and budget. So we have, sure. and it's also about quantity because there's some stuff where like, yeah, there's, there's no way you can't, we're not doing anything besides high potting all of this. Um, so we have a, uh, a high pot tester. Um, there's a couple of companies out there. I think that uh Cirrus systems is at the top of that list for sure. Um, which now coincidentally is a Schleiniger brand 
um, which is another manufacturer that we use for a lot of our processing equipment. Um, but a high pot tester is, uh, think of it as a really fast, quick, uh, DVOM. So it'll do your continuity test. It can read resistance. It can validate, um, mm-hmm. where let's call them pins, but terminals are supposed to, supposed to go versus where they actually are. So we're making sure that continuity yeah. is happening. Uh, it can actually also measure uh, for, you know, twisted pairs. Um, it can pick up a lot. There's a lot of features built into it, but you have to put the time into the equipment in order to really gain the benefit of it. So upon completion of a harness, we'll put it on a high pot. And then what actually is the high pot? So high potential testing. Um, you'll typically work, you know, if you're working with common and slant 16 or slant 32 wire, the wire is rated for 600 volts. Your car doesn't run off a yep. 600 volt supply, right? So, uh, that, but then we go back all the way to Ohm's law, right? So the concept is, is they're going to use very large amounts of voltage at very small amounts of current for very, very, very short amounts of time to allow for any potential to occur. So we're talking about arcing, uh, talking about, you know, you mentioned like a high density auto sport. When, when I hear that, I have, uh, nightmares in my head of like limo connectors, but like, you know, uh, like a, a size 14 shell 64 way, like that's a, that's a double density. It's, it's quite tight. Um, we're not, we're not saying that, you know, we're going to jump across two pins that are side by side, but if those pins are really fragile and if they got bent up a little bit after connector, maybe wasn't capped after it was terminated, a high pot, could pick that up even if that end was not physically mated to the receiving side. Um, so right. the high pot essentially is our way of doing a complete check on the harness, making sure it's, that it's good to go out the door. So we define the voltage, we define the time, we define uh, the expected resistance that we're having, which is important because when you're using smaller gauge wire, the resistance is going to we don't want it to happen, but the resistance will increase as you get smaller and smaller and smaller and longer yeah. and longer and longer. So um, you have to set up the program. It's not just like, oh, I built this harness. So that ties into what I said about the budget. You know, we, if we build a harness that yeah. takes, um, let's use a somewhat recent one, 90 hours, 90, 90 billable man hours to build. To build the corresponding adapter, which will then plug into our Cirrus, could take five to 10 hours plus the cost of all the mating connectors on that harness. So, you know, you're talking about a hundred connectors plus, uh, plus time. You then effectively have to turn around and tell your customer, well, if you, if you require this, there's another X price in order for us to offer this. And some people, they need it, they demand it and that's it. There are instances where it's just, it's cost prohibitive. It's not necessary. And we can get through it with a, like you mentioned before, pen and paper systems check pin to pin each end and just work yep. through the entire thing so i take it from that the the high pot testing really lends itself more to production runs as opposed to one off harnesses unless you do have that customer that absolutely demands it and is prepared to yeah to pay and you know we've crazy enough we've had some larger customers uh that i i anticipated in quoting the job that they were going to require a high pot test and they 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 waived it they didn't want it um, and, and on the production end, it's, it's favorable for us to do that, right? Like almost if the quantity was high enough, I could consider like, well, let's just justify the cost 
to be absorbed on our end because it's allowing us to bang out work quicker. I guess it gives you the the peace of yeah, mind as of well. Uh, you you absolutely know that the product is is one hundred percent when you ship it out, so you just don't need to to be worried. Yeah, about Yeah, I mean, we we literally on. drop a sheet in it confirming the. I mean, we define what's on each test report, but more often than not, it's the pin, it's the color, it's the function, where it started, where it's going, the resistance measured on it, the voltage that was uh, tested across it, applied to it, if you will. Um, it's definitely a peace of mind. I mean, look, in working on cars at all, in any whether you're turning wrenches or building looms, mistakes happen, especially when you know it's more of like a hobbyist thing, and you're with your buddies or you guys call them mates and uh, <laughs> drinking, you know, just having some fun and working. Did somebody tighten this? Did you tighten that? Did you put oil in it? Mistakes happen all the time. We've always maintained here that you know mistakes happen, and that's fine but they need to be identified before the product ever leaves the bench. And I think that that's realistically what the most important thing is. So yeah, the high pot tester definitely gives me um, a lot of peace of mind. Uh, And it also gives staff a lot of peace of mind too, that they know it's been validated and then it'll still go to QC and get checked for lengths and dimensions and full pin seating and things like that. But the machine has picked up things over the years, like crazy stuff broken tine in a in a connector where the the socket you know you inserted it and you felt the click but the second Mm -hmm. that it was made into the tester's receptacle the pin actually forced the contact back past the tine the tine was you know to uh, let me dumb it down for a second the tine is um the call it a receiver in the connector that's physically holding the collar of the contact in place now you could have had that on a bench and just poked it with your voltmeter and you may have not noticed it and it may not have ever been apparent until it was connected on the car backed out and all of a sudden the circuit didn't work so it it's it's proven its value many times over um it's a great piece of equipment and it it has this um god awful windows 95 tada sound when it passes and we, you can change it, but we've never bothered to it because it's kind of just it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm ta-da, you know. Uh, but uh, it's it's an older piece of equipment for sure. But, I mean, they're they're really great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of it. The other end is if we do one of these larger quantity hour projects, we'll sit down with the – it's an exhausting process. You know, you put 90 hours into building something and you got to spend four hours checking over what you did damn right you do you have to um and we'll sit there and read you know reprint out all the documentation so like we'll design it we'll print out the point to point and then we build from that and that gets logged as we're going tools get gauged and initial etc but once it's done if there's any errors in the documentation um or any typos that'll get marked up and then we'll reprint and then we'll red redline the entire thing point to point every single splice every single wire, every single connector to the point that it leaves with as much confidence as something that simply connected five connectors in and out on the Cirrus. Yeah, I hope, hopefully people listening at this point have got a maybe a bit more of an appreciation for what actually goes into the harnesses that you build and obviously why there's a price tag that, that goes along with those that may not suit everyone's budget. 
Look, Joel, I think we'll, we'll move towards sure. wrapping up uh, now. And um, one of the questions we, we always like to ask is, obviously, given your, your experience now in the industry and the company you've built up and the reputation you've got, if you were to maybe talk to a younger version of yourself who wants to go down a similar path and, and get into the professional wiring industry, is, is there any advice you would give on, on how to maybe avoid some of the pitfalls you've gone through or maybe fast track your, yeah, your learning? Sure. Um, I'd probably have to say, you know, don't step over dollars to pick up pennies and try to maybe not easy street, but maybe just, you know, you end up doing, do it once, do it right, be done with it. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned it because, you know, my, my previous company, I got an opportunity to do this exact thing with RaceBec. And when Chris and I grew the brand, it was a different approach for both of us. It wasn't, you know, like perhaps, you know, I know you and I had known each other for a year or so. HPA wasn't your first go at anything. And you come at things with a bit mm. more clarity and an understanding on maybe things that you did wrong or maybe things that you did under a different assumption. Um, but like silly thing, you know, I have probably built 40 different workbenches over the years. <laughs> and, you know, now we've got these nice modular units that I used to like look at and cringe like, oh, my God, I'm not, I can make that. I'm not spending the money on that. It makes all the difference in the world. And I probably could have. Yeah. Many more of them by now and all that I've spent in lumber and wood screws over the years. Um, so, yeah, you know, don't take don't don't try to find the easy way out. Make yourself a nice work environment. Um, you know, the five P's, six P's, if you want proper planning prevents piss poor performance. You want a clean area doesn't need to be, you know, a multi thousand dollar list to set up. But you also shouldn't be working on the floor and taking pictures for Instagram with your toes exposed trying to get business you know what i mean is that too much to say yeah um i i think that that's totally yeah. reasonable uh, if you've got a well laid out workspace you know somewhere you're comfortable and you can be proud of with all of your tools at arm's length i i think you know it, it's pretty easy to understand that that's going to generally lead to a, a better finished product probably yeah for sure well. i mean i it's on my wall is actually um, the first wiring bench that I kept from uh, from the flood, actually. But I, I, I bought some molding and I kind of made it look like it's framed on my wall. This thing was horrible. I mean, my power supply I'm looking at right now was like two one-inch holes at the top that I stuck those like remote battery jumper posts, you know what I'm talking about? That yeah. was my power supply. I had a battery like zip tied to the bottom of it. And that's what I would grab power from when I was testing stuff. Just, you know, make it make it nice for yourself. Because if, if you enjoy what you're doing and you enjoy the space that you're in while you're doing it, your finished product's going to be better, right? And if you have the desire to be in that type of 100%. environment, I think you're only doing yourself a courtesy as well as your customers if you are reselling anything. Absolutely. All right, last question for today, Joel. If people want to find out more or follow you, where can they do so? And obviously, you sell the consumables and the tooling as well. So, yeah, where, sure. where can people go? Um, so, our website is racespeconline.com. Uh, we offer worldwide material sales at retail and wholesale levels. 
there's also enough uh, just contact info on there and some highlights on um, some of our production services and whatnot. And um, on Instagram, uh, it's just at race spec, R-A-C-E-S-P-E-C. And um, yeah, we're based out of uh, Suffern, New York. And um, we've got some cool stuff coming for next year, which we'll be sharing in due time. But uh, happy to reach out. And um, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. No, thanks for your, thanks for your time, Joel. Definitely, I highly recommend giving Joel a follow on Instagram. Always inspirational, seeing what you're up to, and uh, also been inspirational just seeing how much you've grown over the six, seven years, or, or however long it's been since uh, since we first met. So yeah, great, great to see your growth, and uh, yeah, be looking forward to seeing uh, what comes in the future. Thanks again. Likewise, man. Thank you. Stay well. All right, that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring car suspension and wheel alignment uh, data analysis and race driver education now remember you've got that coupon code you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.